0: Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or planned to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood, of course, and we have yet another incredible person on our show today. Uh, DP Denman is a pretty uh, awesome author and writes stuff that some of you are really going to find really interesting, so I'm excited to have her on the show. I'm going to have her tell you more about it, though, so DP Denman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. I'm so glad to be here. So, D, where are you originally from? Where did you grow up? Um...
1: I grew up all over the place, actually. Um, One of my parents liked to move a lot. So I was I simulated being a military brat, though he was never in the military. (laughs) I spent, I guess, most of my childhood in the Pacific Northwest. We moved there when I was 11 or 12 and then bounced around the Washington state for,
0: I don't know, 20, 30 years. Goodness gracious. I could definitely relate with that. My dad was Air Force, and we moved around a lot. But then I did a lot more moving as an adult. I've moved 43 times now. I'm about the same place. When it gets into
1: your blood, you really have a hard time standing still. Oh, absolutely. Kind of sticks
0: with you. So, of course, your writing covers a little bit of the stuff that you've been through. But, I mean, as well as moving, there's other things in your life that have been pretty traumatic. What kind of stuff have you had to deal with?
1: It started out with uh, an abusive childhood, and uh, a lot of people can probably relate to that. I didn't realize until later that it was coming from two parents who both had different versions of narcissistic personality syndrome. Looking at it as an adult, I can see where, okay, yeah, their behavior makes sense. When you have that that mental health issue, a lot of
0: um, very predictable things happen. Yes, absolutely. Um, how do you think that this has impacted who you are today? I think it impacts
1: everything. Um, when you grow up in a trauma- with a traumatic childhood, it not only creates trauma, which layers how you see things but it also informs how you deal with people because when you're a child, that's when you're learning most how to be, be a part of society and to associate with other people in society. And when you come at it from a traumatic upbringing, you see the world differently than someone who doesn't have that. So that impacts me still on a daily basis as, as it tends to do. Right, but, absolutely. But also I think in a strange way, it's a benefit because when other people talk about growing up with trauma or having to deal with anxiety or depression all the stuff that comes out of uh, PTSD or complex PTSD i don't have to they don't have to explain to me what they're going through because i've lived it so i understand
0: right and that's something that other survivors have a hard time finding as a sort of safe person to talk to because they feel like most of the world can't relate. They feel really isolated. Did you go through that yourself with the, the whole isolation? You can't don't have anybody to talk to about it? With the PTSD
1: part, definitely. Um, yeah. Even now, it's still in the very infancy of, of its discussion. We talk a lot about that related to military situations. Everybody's pretty familiar with, okay, military, you're in combat, a lot of people end up with PTSD, but they don't necessarily realize that you can have, you can develop PTSD without ever being in the military. It's just, it's a response to a traumatic traumatic event that you can have even as a civilian. Right, and finding things like um, support groups, for instance, as a civilian, it's very difficult.
0: That's very true. And when you break it down, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It has nothing to do with military action. It has everything to do with post-traumatic stress. Exactly. Yeah. And it should be more available to people. And there, there are some programs out there, but they can be really difficult to find, you know? And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show. What is it that you do What is it that you talk about?
1: I um, inform people through entertainment. I found that's the easiest way to get people to listen to a story (laughs) because you can lecture to them and some people might listen to it. And you can go on Twitter and scream at them and nobody's going to hear anything you're saying. But if you can draw them into a fictional story like we do on TV all the time, they're more likely to stick around long enough to understand the situation. So I write romance novels about people who have been in very hard places and then walk them through recovery and into a happily ever after and take the reader along with me so they get at least some idea of what that's like.
0: I absolutely love that. I think um, I've had several different authors on the show that do exactly this. And those are the ones that seem to make the most impact. You know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of trafficking. That book, although it has reached out and touched some other people's lives who have also experienced trafficking in some form, it doesn't have quite the same impact as people such as yourself uh, who write these fictional stories that really hook people, drag them into this story, and then show them parallels to their own lives. You know, it's this is a huge deal, what it is that you're doing. I, I want you to be aware of that. This is a very big deal. You're helping people even if you're not seeing the expressions on their faces when they're walking through the stories. Yeah, thank you.
1: I don't honestly, I don't think about that part often. I just yes. think about, okay, am I getting this reaction right? Because it has to ring true. Because most people that read it aren't going to have lived experience, but the few that do, you're going to hear from them if you get it wrong.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. What helped you to be able to heal from from your trauma and your experiences?
1: A lot of time and consistent work at it with uh, the newer uh, PTSD that I just acquired five years ago. That's still a learning experience because it's a little bit different. But with things from my childhood that are still lingering, you work on it one aspect at a time. Uh, PTSD is multifaceted. It affects a lot of different things all at the same time, but in different ways. So yeah. if you try to tackle it all at once, you're going to get overwhelmed and feel defeated and probably quit. But if you just uh, tackle one issue at a time, it makes it a lot easier.
0: And are you okay with talking about what it is that happened five years ago? Sure. Okay. Because um, I know this this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people, and some people take some time to be able to talk about it. What, what happened?
1: I lost a friend to suicide. And um, I know a lot of people are going through that same thing. There's a, it's been getting a lot of press lately. Um, I guess the difference with me is that I don't have a lot of friends, and he was the one I leaned on the most. So when you lose that pillar, it kind of crumbles your whole foundation and you have to rebuild. Yes. So I was determined that I was going to make something positive out of it, and I jumped right into talking about suicide awareness and going around to area schools in the Pacific Northwest and talking to teenagers about suicide awareness and new ways to look at mental health. There's still the idea that depression is, there's only one kind of depression when actually there's nine different kinds, but most people don't know that. So. That's handy information to be getting out there to give people a new perspective. Oh, yeah. And out of that trauma, um, I developed PTSD, um, a different version than I'd had before. Things like I lost six months. I was living it day to day, doing everything I normally do, but my brain decided it had seen enough and it just stopped recording it. So there's six months out of um, relatively soon after the suicide. I just don't remember anything that happened. People will tell me, oh, we did this and we did this. And I take their word for it because I was probably there and they have pictures. I just don't remember any of it.
0: And it's so it's so frustrating, too, when you tell that to somebody, I'm sure, and they don't understand what you're talking about. What do you mean? You were right there. How could you not remember this? But this is very much a real thing that happens.
1: You're it nice. is. It is. And I think the flashbacks are another thing that people don't understand that it's very different from a memory. Yes. It it takes over your whole brain.
0: Right. And you're basically you're reliving it. You are back in that situation. It is not a memory of that situation where you're suddenly just thinking about it. You're reliving it. And it's terrifying. Yes.
1: yes. And that can happen whether you're awake or asleep. I've had it happen a lot in my dreams.
0: Yeah. Yep, me too. I did notice that when you filled out my my question stuff, you had mentioned an organization that I only recently became involved with myself. Uh, I met the president who sits on the board of directors for an organization called NAMI, N-A-M-I. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved with them and what all you learned from them?
1: Absolutely, I love them. I stumbled across them when I was looking for places to volunteer talking about mental health and and suicide prevention. And they actually had my local group, this isn't something they do nationally, but my local chapter actually had a grief support group for people who have lost someone to suicide, which is a very specific kind of grief. It's not something a lot of people understand. So being able to get involved in that was amazing. Aside from support groups like that or for people who have mental health issues or for family members of people who have mental health issues, they also give free classes that really dive deeply into mental health so you can get a better understanding of what's happening, why these symptoms come up, and how you can better deal with them or help your friend or loved one to deal with them. And it's all free, and that's one of the parts I love about it the most. You don't have to have disposable income. You just have to show up. Yes,
0: they are fantastic. And for the people who don't know, NAMI, N-A-M-I, stands for National Allegiance on Mental Illness. Depression can be considered one of those mental illnesses, and depression is a very common symptom after uh, dealing with suicide or traumatic events. Yeah. So who who inspires you the most, and why is that? Um...
1: I think my friend still inspires me the most. I'm still looking for little ways to make a positive out of this, to continue his legacy in a positive way. Because the suicide overshadows a lot of things. So everything that he was building before he died is almost an afterthought. It's still very much how he died. Right. So I like being able to um, get into the mental health discussion and talk about it not only from the position of someone who's considering suicide, but the position from someone who
0: isn't. Right, right. Do you know if there were any signs or warnings that, that looking back you may recognize now that other people might need to look out for in the future when they're dealing with somebody who's depressed? In his case, it was a little hard to unravel
1: He had mental health issues, was battling depression and anxiety and all of that from the time he was a teenager. So it was 30 years of struggle. And every now and then he would go off the rails and threaten suicide or even attempt it. We knew that it was a possibility, but he always bounced back from that. So I think it kind of gave us a false sense of security that no matter how rough things got for him, he would be able to dig deep and find a way to keep going. And he ran out of places to dig, apparently. But he lost um, another close friend to suicide two months before he died. So a lot of his, the last two months of his trauma was mostly grief and PTSD. The same thing I'm going through now. He just, he hit a wall. Everybody has a breaking point, And that was his. Wow.
0: That's awful. How He said he's been gone for five years now.
1: Yeah, he died in
0: July of... Uh, Two thousand seventeen. Wow. Would you mind sharing his name just so we can all remember who he was? Yeah, his name is Chester. Chester. So I'm gonna take a moment to dedicate this episode to Chester and to those like Chester. This is it's it's heartbreaking when we lose somebody special and a lot of times they don't realize how special they are.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of the problem with suicide. Depression just takes you into this pit where you start thinking that people will be better off without you. And it, it warps your version of reality so you don't see things the way other people see them. So I like to say he wasn't in his right mind when he died because he wasn't. Yeah. He was thinking he was replaceable and that we'd be sad for a while and just get
0: over it. Right. And so many people feel that way. It's, and they couldn't be more wrong. It couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. I've lost a few friends myself. And it's just, you never, you never really learn to move beyond it. They're just always there in your mind. You learn to make room for it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And when you're depressed and, and have low self-esteem, it's hard to realize just how much you mean to people.
0: Right. That is so true. I understand that you have your book handy and you're willing to do a reading for our audience, Dee. Yes, I can do that. That would be fun. I would love to have you read some from your book and give people a little bit of an idea of your writing style and how it is that you speak to them.
1: Let me grab it here. That will be so much fun.
0: And did you, while you're grabbing that, did you find that writing about characters in difficult situations helped you to move beyond and to help to you to understand your own previous difficult situations? I think, in
1: a way, it almost helped me find a sense of community because I know this is a fictional character, but at the same time, Um, In this particular book, his story is informed by stories I heard from real people. So it's um, a way of giving me some closure, even if no one else, and I'm assuming other people who read it would find a little bit of that themselves. It's weird the impact the fictional characters can have on you. (laughs) Yes.
0: And one of my earliest experiences with that is completely way off subject, but I was a huge Star Trek The Next Generation fan when I was a kid growing up, teenager. Mm, Um, The very final episode came out when I think I was 15 or 16 years old, something like that. And I remember sneaking out of my bedroom. I was grounded at the time, wasn't supposed to be watching TV. And I watched it anyway. And at the end of the episode, I cried my eyes out because those were my closest friends and I was never going to see them again. I've done the same thing. (laughs) Or when they
1: kill off your favorite character. It's like, okay, first of all, that was an emotional connection for me. And
0: second, I no longer
1: have a reason to watch the show.
0: Right, exactly. You just destroyed this for me. I'm never coming back ever. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that that connection to to uh, frictional characters is just it's so deep so
1: deep it is and I think that's a testament to the writers that you can get so invested in a character that it breaks your heart when they're gone yes yep absolutely (laughs) and you have your book handy I do um I'm going to talk about a scene where he has a ptsd flashback and i hope that's that's not too intense
0: you should be good i do put a trigger warning disclaimer on all of my podcasts so people are they know what to expect it's a a tough subject matter it is all
1: right so to set the scene the main character is named blue he's about 20 years old He went through a very destructive uh, physically and emotionally and mentally version of conversion therapy, and just in case your listeners aren't familiar with that, that's a type of pseudo-psychology that is used a lot on the LGBTQ community to dissuade them from being gay or um, having a different identity or having a different gender identity than what they were born with things like that so it's trying to reset their brain to quote unquote normal Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and it it can do a lot of damage so here we go blue atkins was in the kitchen the next morning helping mary the housekeeper make lunch since his craving for grilled cheese was the reason she stood over the island's built-in griddle he decided the least he could do was help Dark granite stretched from one end of the room to the other, broken up by the gleam of stainless steel appliances. A small flat-screen television perched at the far end of one counter. Behind it flowed the view of house, trees, and sea in the distance. The midday news mumbled under his conversation with Mary about the perfect ingredients for grilled cheese and why nothing worked as well as cheddar. And Naomi, hoped never to hear again, reached through their exchange and smacked into him with enough force to shove him into the counter, jerking his head toward the television. The image of a cabin among trees froze his lungs. For a moment, he couldn't move, couldn't breathe, couldn't scream out the terror pouring into him. It raced along his skin, turning him simultaneously hot and cold. Mary's hand on his back broke the trance. Blue, you don't look good, baby. Why don't you sit down for a minute? He opened his mouth to speak, and the fear rushed out, pushing everything out with it and onto the kitchen floor. He gripped the counter for support, his limbs soggy and frigid, the tension crept through his body until his heart shivered with the rest of him. He felt arms around him, holding him close, and bolted from the smothering sensation. Neri's voice emerged through the buzz of panic. Come on, baby, over here, she said with a firm grip on his arm. Sit down and take some deep breaths. He sat, his hands as cool as the glass tabletop, and rocked in his chair, memories tripping over each other in his head. They were going to kill him. He knew it. He couldn't be cured, and the Bible said he was better off dead than continuing life as a queer, defective affront to God. He heard Mary speaking, the insistent tone coming from somewhere far away. Right now, Brady. He smelled the musty wood of the cabin, the rich aroma of dirt and trees, the acrid stench of sweat and depravity. When they starved him in an agonizing crawl toward death, would they starve him in an agonizing crawl toward death or spare him the torment and just kill him? He hoped they killed him. He didn't want to spend his last moments trapped with his thoughts, hating himself for his weakness. Wow. And Brady in that is, is kind of the hero in the story who rescues Blue from the fact that he has nothing. When, when the two characters meet, he's homeless, abandoned by his family.
0: Wow. I have known people to be Homeless because they were abandoned by their family. I, myself, was abandoned by my family. And I know that feeling. But the hoping to die alive, that's terrifying. Yeah, Such a dark place to be. And
1: thankfully, he ends up in the good place. That's the great part about romance. Everybody gets a happily ever after.
0: <laughs> right, right. You know, I heard it said many years ago that... The happy ending depends on where you stop telling the story. I love that, that people get those happy endings. Not all of us do in real life, you know. but I think with the efforts that we're making to battle mental health issues and to dig down deep and to help overcome all of this stuff, people can have happy endings like that. They can figure out how to stop telling the story at the proper moment to be able to have a happily ever after. I think it's possible. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and that's one of the the reasons I continued this series until all of the little threads were uh, tied up at the end in a neat little bow is so that people can walk through. It covers a decade of his life after this trauma and shows step-by-step how he rebuilds everything and, and where he ends up in the end. And I hope that at some point it gives someone hope that that can happen even in real life.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you have two different book series going right now. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, the one, the current one is blue, uh, the the series about this character. And then I'm starting another one. That's a little
0: different spin. Very cool. That's awesome. And where do people go to be able to find your books?
1: They can go to Amazon, of course, because Amazon sells everything. Or they can go to my website, dpdenman.com.
0: Very nice. And I do see that your uh, website, you also have a listing here for for philanthropy uh, and self-care, which is super cool. So that people are looking for more information on this stuff. They have that ability also.
1: Yes. I started the philanthropy tab actually, I don't know, four or five years ago when everything started to fall apart. Because for me personally, the best cure for depression is to feel like you can do something. So this was me guiding uh, people to a place where if you want to get involved to make the world better instead of helping make it worse,
0: try these guys. Right, right. Yeah, and listed just for the people who are curious is uh, the information for ACLU, Lambda Legal, Music for Relief, NAMI, of course, and American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I've never heard of Music for Relief, but this is something that I talk about often as far as music being helpful for uh, trauma recovery. What is Music for Relief?
1: Music for Relief is was started by a band called Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. Let me enunciate that. Sorry. <laughs> in response to uh, the tsunami in Taiwan, I believe it was quite a few years ago. They had the band had just been there touring, and they barely gotten home just a few weeks later, and the, the tsunami came through and destroyed the entire community where they had been just weeks before. So they decided for them, the best way to deal with it was to find a way to help. So they created this charity that helps communities that are affected by major natural disasters like that.
0: That is fantastic. And if people aren't familiar with Linkin Park, it's kind of an alternative music, but it's fantastic. And anybody who ever listens to them, if it's your type of music, most people really enjoy their stuff. Um, Now there's just one more reason to really like them they're out there doing good stuff (laughs) they're being human you know they're not pretending that they're impervious to disasters themselves they're recognizing that this happens and that it could have been them
1: exactly yeah Yeah. and that we're all in this together so you can't just pretend that your corner of the planet is the only one that exists
0: right oh you're unaffected you're over there yeah that doesn't work Well, Dee, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on my show today. I very much appreciate you. I always have one last question that I ask people before I let them go, though. Okay. Can you name one thing that you absolutely love about yourself that is not related to physical appearance?
1: That is such a great question. I love that you end with that. <laughs> one thing I love about my, myself, my resilience. I think is my, my biggest internal asset. And I, I like to call myself an emotional masochist because I can take a lot of beating <laughs> and I still keep getting up off the floor.
0: <laughs> that is fantastic. I love your resilience too. I know we just recently met, but I think you're just amazing and you're definitely a survivor and an overcomer. You're, you're pretty cool. Thank you so much. I think the same about you. thank you it's a comfort to me to know people like you are out there in the world still fighting for the rest of us thank you if you've enjoyed tonight's episode please make sure you check out the episode description there you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest links to connect with them on social media and how to support the podcast remember I don't get paid to do this my boss is a bit tight-fisted but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth From Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com.